Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Kanye, buddy, it's time to wake up. I don't want to. Yeah, you know what they say, man. Another day, another dollar. It's another day, another donda. Just let me yawn real quick. Where's that music coming from? Everywhere and nowhere. Don is a social okay, experiment. Well, the second your feet hit the floor, we gotta get to work. They're not gonna come up. Holy shit, are you levitating? Never stop working. Don did drop it when I drop. I there, am Donda. Is there no gravity in this room? We're outside the realm of reality. This is the intro to a podcast. It's all just a podcast intro. What's going on? Life's a wreck. Gentlemen, individuals and people, humans and aliens alike, welcome to the greatest show on Earth, or like the northern part of Earth, specifically Eastern Canada, New, New Brunswick, small, t- listen, the show's not that, it's okay, sorry, yes, uh, you've been with us for over two years, 60 episodes, and today we wrap up season four. Now introducing your host. He says he's made a living off of being the dumbest guy in the room. People describe him as being the dumbest guy in the room. Your mom's favorite podcaster, Kyle Moore. And next, he makes grown men cry. Literally, he made the other guy cry a lot. Like a lot. He's the best thing to ever happen to the show. Also, Kyle Moore! But like the, the head voice, personification, mental health, guy thing. Hello, podcast world. <laughs> just a, just oh, an honor What's going on, buddy? Truly. And count me out. One, two, three, boom. That's an entrance, baby. I don't get, dude... I do not care what people say. We do it right. We really do. There's no, there's no mental health podcast with this, this, this pizzazz, this flair. You know, a little. I'd say little something extra. I mean, life's a wreck, but our production. I mean, come on, top notch. Yeah. Needless to say, welcome to the season four finale of Life's Wreck, guys. Sixtieth uh, episode of the show, still going strong, stronger than ever. Some might say. Couldn't agree more. And, and like, it, it's amazing just to continue to do what we love and, and see this community continue. To flourish. Honestly, we can't thank you guys enough it, for, for supporting us, supporting each other, buying into this idea of consuming content that is created to help inspire those listening to focus on their mental health. Uh, b- brilliant. Like in preparation for this episode, I went back and I listened to some of the old podcasts and it was really, really cool to see how far I've come personally but also like the show hell dude when this thing started you could barely hear yeah me. you also weren't really the nicest either at the time like that was kind of now here we are here we are a couple of good looking besties good acquaintances were draw that line I'll, see i'll take that honestly it's just like one of those it's such an important conversation with you guys on this special day for before us before we get into it though uh sorry to cut you off housekeeping for our season finale 
our boy Alistair Nicholson came up with the inspiration for this week's intro. It had to do Donda. Of course, obviously. Uh, and here's the sweet part. We were like, hey, man, do you want us to shout out your new Which song? Which is called Kevin Durant by Alan Favors on Spotify and Apple Music. Just by the way. You know, just in case you're like, oh, God, I need some music to listen to. And he to. goes, like, no, 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 that's okay. Shout out your designers. They've been amazing lately. What a nice guy. So, yeah, shout out to our amazing design team, Yvette Sin and Avery Woods. That's at yve.sin and at a-v-e-e-r-y woods on instagram we're very fortunate to have uh i mean you've seen like you guys have seen the instagram hopefully you guys have seen the instagram it's it's incredible uh and, and that's you know i i would a hundred percent put us against any other podcast in the world about having some of the best visuals in podcasting uh and it's because of them so give them a follow and uh check out their work also got to thank uh you know one of the partners on this episode, Tether. Tether is just this amazing social network that we are a part of uh, and that you guys have heard, heard us talk about before that helps connect men who are struggling with other men who just get it. Um, it's a non-judgmental space to talk and connect uh, and, and we're so happy to be working with them continuously. So either tell the men in your life about it or, or take your you know little cute self over to Google Play or the App Store today. Uh, start connecting. It's There's literally no downside. Um, what's the worst that happens? You have get some things off your chest have a little bit of fun is there anything else uh, we gotta check off the list before um, we get into it i don't i don't know uh i don't oh yes we're uh we're dropping some uh better tomorrow uh some new better tomorrow merch coming up uh, here soon um we're gonna kind of do like a we're gonna kind of call it like a back to school capsule uh so it includes two different posters uh designed by the incredible designers we were just talking about uh sticker packs yeah spice up your laptop water bottle who doesn't love fucking stickers dude exactly uh and dad hats because everyone needs a better tomorrow dad hats. since we're transitioning between seasons <laughs> there we go maybe it's a good time for a break uh follow us on instagram at morzy uh that's morzy with three y's and at life's Rec podcast for uh, those updates and we'll be launching the better tomorrow social soon so uh keep an eye out for that the funny thing is and i gotta give kudos to everybody listening to this who has done it but we haven't launched um our uh, our instagram feed or twitter feed for better tomorrow yet uh but some of you guys have already found the instagram account so that's uh that's love right there you know <laughs> absolutely throughout the past few years not only have we been really lucky to um have you guys become part of our our community and the life Strike family but like we've also been really lucky with the people that we've talked to um you know we've been able to curate and share the stories of people with all different backgrounds and sexualities ethnicities nationalities um, and today, I, I think it's fitting that we continue to do that as we go into our fifth season, as we finish up our fourth season, uh, and amplify the stories of our indigenous neighbors. Uh, as of recording this episode, uh, and this was a statistic I was shocked by, over 1,400, 1,400 bodies of indigenous youth have been found at residential school sites across Canada, and that number continues to rise all the time. The last residential school closed in 1996. Just for those of you keeping track at home, that's two f***ing years before we so were this born. this isn't like, you know, a lot of us would like to turn a blind eye to history mm. sometimes. But this isn't even history. This is barely a generation ago. You know, our indigenous population has had to endure constant cruelty through human history. Uh, forced from their land, families ripped apart. And like you'll hear in this episode, time and time again, through systematic oppression having their identity stripped away. If that doesn't just scream mental health to you, I, I don't know what will. Sharing these stories is, is so important. And, and like, do what I'm telling you, just to sit back and listen and learn from our guest today was, uh, it was awesome. Yeah. It, was, it was enlightening. I, yeah, I think, I think that's a good way to put it. For our season finale, I am so honored to welcome Cheyenne Joseph to the podcast. Cheyenne is a registered nurse with a master's degree in public health and is a certified community health nurse. She has been working in healthcare for 18 years, having worked in many sectors such as health centers, government, not-for-profit, uh, and academia. She is currently the executive director for the Rising Sun Treatment Center in Eel Ground First Nations, New Brunswick. Cheyenne, thank you for taking the time today. How you doing? <laughs> yeah, so, um, so check-in. Uh, yep. yeah. So the check-in for me is that, uh, that I'm as good as can be expected, I guess, given mm -hmm. all of the challenges that we've had over the past year. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, 
I guess that's that's all I would say is things are good and we just manage mostly just day by day, especially when different rules and COVID uh, restrictions are lifted or imposed and just you got to be flexible and adaptable. And mm. as someone who's grown up in an army family, um, we've always, oh, wow. I've always had to be, always had to be adaptable. Who knows when my dad's going to come home and, and say, okay, we're moving to a new city or, you know, I've got to go away right, for yeah. several months on training or it just, you got to expect curveballs in life. It's just the way it goes. So um, yeah, this is just one of those, another one of those life curveballs. So you just, you got to roll with it and, and be flexible and, you know, I used to teach nursing at UNB and it was community mm-hmm. nursing. And I always used to tell the students, your your plan A sounds really wonderful, but always mm-hmm. have a plan B and a plan C because there's going to be things that you don't expect to come up. But the more you have other plans to work around any potential obstacles, mm-hmm. the the smoother the process will be and you'll get less frustrated with it. So that's this 100%. is one of those examples. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, and I think it's funny because like, obviously this year or i mean these past two years really like i couldn't have imagined mm-hmm. when, when covid first started i was still in toronto i was finishing up my degree at ryerson mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and uh and i just remember like hopping on a call with my parents and saying yeah no you know i'm just going to kind of wait it out they're only saying it'll be two three <laughs> weeks and then everything will be back under control and now here we are <laughs> two years later yeah. i'm living with my parents yeah. moved back to the east coast <laughs> And it seemed like everything yeah. just kind of upended within the course of like of, of seven or eight days, which is just crazy to think yeah. about. How how is uh, I mean, and COVID affected everything that you're doing with uh, with the clinic. Um, like, how is that kind of all yeah. all looked? Yeah, so I'm I'm the executive director of an alcohol and drug rehab center in a First Nation community in New Brunswick, and mm-hmm. so it has completely changed everything that we do and how we do it. So, for example, when the pandemic first uh, was uh, declared and in New Brunswick, the mandatory orders came into play for the state of emergency. Um, and knowing that we're in a First Nation community, uh, there was no other decision other than we have to close for the safety of right. staff and for mm-hmm. the safety of clients and for the community. So we closed the center to everybody and we just sort of worked from home. I mean, there's it, we've never worked from home at a rehab center before, so right, we, yeah, there yeah. wasn't there. There was lots of lots of question marks about what does that mean. Um, and then we reopened in May to just staff, so that uh, we could start to come together as a team. I had just started my job that March, and they didn't know wow. who I was, so we were still trying to figure out who I was and how I was going to relate and and mix in with the team. Um, right. And then how how are we going to shift our program and services so that we can still, because we still need to offer addiction services at a time like this when people are super stressed out. And if their coping mechanism is to lean on drugs and or alcohol, then they're Mm going to need us more than ever. Because I don't know if you remember Kyle, but in the beginning when everything closed, except grocery stores and, and be liquor and cannabis stores. So yeah, we know that those, and for good reason, right? Because if people of don't course. have access to those things, then then it puts them at more risk for other uh, other health issues that are going to happen and, and social mm-hmm. uh, issues that happen. So I understand why they did that, but just it just meant that people, um, if they needed to lean on those, those were available. And so yeah. we we still had to figure out how to be able to still support people who we're looking to get into recovery or stay in recovery because now that was going to be a challenge. Um, and so we spent a couple of months just coming together as a team and figuring out what that's going to look like and to yeah. look back on our own organizational history and see what we've done before. We've done day programs before. Okay, so let, maybe we could look at doing that. Um, and so in September, early September, we opened up to a virtual program, which has is virtually unheard of in the treatment world is certainly in indigenous addiction treatment services. Um, but that was really the, when you, when you think about services and what's safe and risk levels, that was still providing service, still keeping people safe, keeping Mm -hmm. them in their homes, um, not getting people in person together. So that was in terms of risk level, it was the lower risk of many options. And so we started offering things online on zoom, um, and we had donations of tablets if we needed to lend them out. Uh, we got the we got equipment at work to be able to 
uh, be able to offer that because we didn't actually have. Um, wow. A- well, I was just going to say, like, good on you guys, because I mean, that that's obviously something that uh, during this pandemic, like, I I know that, you know, from seeing all the statistics, like there was such an uptick in the need for mental health services. So I can imagine yeah. that uh, especially in uh, communities that might not be as accessible, um, having that would be even more of an importance. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because for for many people, they're the one we're the go to people when it comes to addiction services. And then there's an, another agency organization that specifically focuses on mental wellness. So both right. of us um, had had a rise in uh, requests and clients who needed our support. Yeah, I kind of want to double like double click in on, um, you know, saying that you guys are the go to services, because I'm just kind of curious of like, what services exist outside of um, for those rural communities, like what really was the options for them uh, if, a, if a center like yours isn't available? Yeah, well, that's, uh, yeah. So what's available when the treatment center in your community is closed? And that has been probably one of the biggest struggles because there's so yeah. little available. And then what's, av- because the provincial addiction services or provincial treatment centers, they were at half capacity because they couldn't have clients share rooms. So typically in a treatment center like ours, for example, we have 10 beds, but they are five bedrooms. So they're, they're oh. two, two clients per bedroom. And the provincial treatment centers, as far as I know, uh, were only able to have half the number of clients because they could only have one client per bedroom. Um, Mm. They eventually figured out like once the client has been there for two weeks, then they can start sharing rooms, that kind of stuff. But uh, for quite a long time. So not only would they have had a waiting list, but now they can't even get through their waiting list um, at the rate that they normally would, because they're, they're only able to care for half the number of clients that they normally do. So, Mm -hmm. and then our treatment center had been closed for several months and it was that's partly contributing to people not having someone to reach out to and many counselors and other medical professionals weren't seeing people in person just over zoom and so right. it it has been a huge challenge for people trying to access medical care including mental mm-hmm. health care how does it uh, how does it look different um you know the work that you guys are doing obviously uh community plays such a significant role in indigenous communities. So I'm kind of curious, like community nursing, the approach to that, what does that look like? I would just kind of love to learn a little bit more about community nursing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So community nursing in my, in my experience, I mean, you can have medical clinics within communities. um, And so you can have nurses working in a medical clinic where there's a doctor, nurse practitioner, other nurses, and you're doing the typical medical care so they're coming in for an appointment so there's that aspect to it there's also um the aspect of home care services though that's delivered in community by community health nurses so um when you're discharged from the hospital and there's still some medical care that needs to be taken care of when you go home you've got home care nurses that will go to your home and um maybe it's changing a dressing or maybe it's uh taking care of some other kind of wound or medical issue or checking in mm-hmm. making sure that you're doing okay um so mm-hmm. there's home care services and then uh and then there's the public health component to to community health nursing which we've kind of i think got a glimpse of through the pandemic in terms of what is public health and what do we do so in public health that's about um it could be immunization clinics. I've, I did that mm. for, for several years. So it, typically we were immunizing children. Um, obviously this past year it was focusing on getting people their COVID vaccine. Of course. Yeah. Um, it can also be about communicable disease in general. So when there's um, outbreaks of other kinds of viruses and, and illnesses, um, public health are the ones that do contact tracing, contact people, let them know they were exposed and all of those uh, mm-hmm. components that go with it. Uh, for me, I've done a lot of the um, maternal and child health aspects. So uh, doing prenatal classes, um, doing prenatal care, um, doing home visits with fam- new families or expectant families. Um, and then once the baby's born, um, checking in on the families once they get back home. Um, mm-hmm. And just and also developing programs uh, in community. So I've been part of developing a program that 
uh, that helps to connect the most vulnerable and underserved community members and better mm-hmm. connect them to services that they need. So it might be folks that are living in domestic violence or living with substance abuse right. and getting them better connected to services that can help them. Mm-hmm. A bit of a, uh, I guess, a, a change in direction of this question particularly. Uh, I know that speaking from experience, somebody who works within the mental health space and you talk to a lot of people or I, I talk to a lot of people, I listen to their stories. And uh, sometimes that can be that can be really uh, tough. And so I kind of wanted to know, like, with everything that we've seen recently um, with, uh, you know, whether it's residential schools or just uh, on the communities as a whole, um, the the trauma that I'm sure that you are exposed to. I mean, how, how do you stay mentally engaged and mentally healthy in all of this? Because as somebody who's providing support, I mean, how are you getting support yourself? Wow, that's a <laughs> that's a great question. We don't often ask the healthcare providers how they are. Um, because we're so, (laughs) it is. Yeah. We're so consumed as healthcare providers, especially in moments like this, I think it can consume us. We want to be able to help as many people as we can, especially when we know that even before the pandemic, our communities, um, and many community members were struggling with, um, for us, we see the addictions, uh, part Mm. of things, uh, mental health. And I think the, um, residential schools and the um, the uncovering of previously undiscovered, mm. I guess, um, unmarked yeah. graves, as as brought residential schools and the the stories and those histories back into the news, and I think it's given a bit more context for more people around why our communities have so many people that are. Um, living with a mental illness, living with addictions, mm-hmm, of course, yeah. and where that and where that comes from, because I think that even before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, so be- before two thousand and fifteen, I don't think many Canadians knew that story and that history, and really didn't understand the context of those mental illnesses and mental health issues and addictions. Yeah. And I think the, the narrative before that had always been um, something along the lines of it's we're indigenous and we're somehow, therefore that makes us weak in some way. And that's why we're experiencing right. these things. Um, and a lot of negative stereotypes connected to, to those things. And now with the TRC final report, which brought it into the news, um, and now with uh, more news connected to residential schools with unmarked graves of children, um, I think that's really pulling at the heartstrings of the general public. And people are having, people are opening their hearts and minds even more to understanding where some of these, um, some of these issues are coming from that they've, they're not just because. They have nothing to do with the fact that we are indigenous. It has everything to do with the historical context of colonization and forced mm-hmm. assimilation, and that that's the root cause of many of these issues that we're now having to um, help people get through. Absolutely. And I think that, like, I mean, 1996, the last residential school was mm-hmm. in Canada was officially closed. Like, that's two years before I was born and I'm a 22 year old kid. Like to, yeah. to think that this, uh, that this trauma is old is just, yeah. is just to turn a blind eye to history. I mean, this is recent trauma and, and generational, like to have a whole group of people, their entire existence, like, you know, to have that just tried to be consistently pulled away for years and you know, ripped away for years and years and years. And then to live with that, it's just one of those things where it's like, how could you not, experience the the after effects of trauma yes and i think the general public had never made the connection between that trauma and the post-traumatic stress disorder that i would imagine many many survivors are having to live with and have lived with without being diagnosed and that we and because because we can label or give it a label i suppose um it makes it um people seem to be able to connect with with that easier. So for mm-hmm. example, we, when we talk about veterans who have, who have gone away to war or first responders, 
we don't question the mental health challenges that they that they many of them can experience when they come back from war or after seeing being a first responder to a very traumatic event um, or scene, we never question that. And we're and the general public and the general narrative is, of course, they need mental health support and help. But we've never the general public has never made that connection with residential school survivors, mm-hmm. and instead has stigmatized them. And I think that that's starting to change and shift slowly, but in a better direction, in a direction where they have a bigger heart and understand that, of course, residential school survivors need help and support after experiencing horrific, horrific events on a daily basis as a child. And then we now need to also consider that when those children grew up, they became parents themselves. And we can only ever expect someone to parent based on the parenting that they had as a child. So residential school survivors had what kind of parenting? So of course they repeated many of those abuses as parents because that's all they knew. That's how they knew how to love and interact with people. And so that's how Mm -hmm. you get intergenerational or one way you get intergenerational trauma. And so Mm -hmm. to break that cycle as someone who runs a, a rehab center, it is absolutely a hard task to break those cycles of violence and substance 100%. use. I've seen through um, interviewing people with complex post-traumatic stress disorder and PTSD that the mm-hmm. ripple effects that exist after that trauma, I, I think so many people mm-hmm. are blind to the fact that, you know, they've lived cushy, comfortable lives and they see somebody go through a traumatic mm-hmm. event and they think it's a traumatic event. That event traumatized you, but you're the only trauma you experience is surrounding that exact event. And the the web that it creates and the trauma mm-hmm. and, and the people you interact with the people that you're around how that trauma spreads it's yeah the the idea mm-hmm. of intergenerational but also just community spread of trauma itself it's mm-hmm. it's a it's systematic and the the part of our challenge is that uh, certainly in a pandemic um or any other time quite frankly but what happens when those uh those community members reach out to mental health clinicians and professionals for help and support very rarely will you have be able to find someone that understands the history and context and challenges related Mm. to that and so the cultural safety within the world of mental health services that's our challenge right now is to get people professionals culturally safe yeah how do you how do you go about uh bettering that i know that that's obviously a fairly broad question but I mean, that, that that seems like obviously that would be hugely important and an emphasis should be put on something like that. Yeah. So you first of all, you need people or organizations and companies who can do that kind of training. Uh, you also um, need people willing to listen and hear what has to be said. Um, mm-hmm. And when you're asking professionals who have been doing this work for a long time to change the way they do work, I know as a nurse who I've been a nurse for 18 years, um, you can't just go to a conference, attend a conference on cultural safety and then return home and expect that anything will be different in their practice. It is a daily change in the way that you think and relate to specific clients with these kinds of traumas and histories. So it's mm. it's ongoing work. It it's happening. It needs to happen in every profession. We see that in the calls to action in the TRC. It, it specifically calls out medical schools and nursing schools specifically. But that really, I mean, that really is about the whole entire health system. And we also need to be able to have our own people go and become these professionals. Mm. And that's a whole. Right. It it will come, I think, in 20 years, we'll see some big changes and more youth that um, are, be, do become the healthcare professionals. Uh, mm-hmm. But we're just beginning this. We're just at the beginning of, of some of these conversations. And we've really have, we've been saying this for decades, that these things need to be right. different, certainly within the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. TRC, I, I say this over and over again, the TRC, the final report, the, the media attention that it got has has created a critical mass within the general population that all of a sudden we can, and it feels like night and day, we can have these conversations with people like yourself and others who really want to hear what we have to say now. We wouldn't Mm -hmm. be having this conversation, Kyle, probably in 
<laughs> 10 years ago. I can tell you what it was like to teach nursing seven years ago uh, before mm-hmm. the TRC. And it was really hard to reach students because they felt that, why do I need to learn about Indigenous health when I'm never going to work with people who are Indigenous? Because in their oh, mind, yeah. you only work with Indigenous people when you're in an Indigenous community, which doesn't even make right. any sense. I said, right. if, you're go- if you guys are going to work in Moncton, because I was teaching at the satellite site in Moncton, if you guys are going to, mm-hmm. or even Fredericton, to be to be frank, if you're going to work in any of the three cities, four cities here in, in New Brunswick, you're going to come across Indigenous people. How could you not? And you need right, to learn how to be better nurses for them. And um, But it wasn't until the TRC that uh, conversations took a complete 180. And all of a sudden, I was being asked to do guest lectures left, right, and center and be part of this committee and that committee. And what do you think? And what do you think? And what do you think? So it's it's right. just really been a whirlwind of change. And we really have to uh, make sure this momentum doesn't stop and that it continues. And we keep pushing that flywheel so that we can keep building that momentum because we're moving in the right direction, but we can't stop. No, absolutely. No, I, I think that uh, just like we've seen over the course of these past couple of years with different social movements, like the one of the biggest things is keep your foot on the gas. Like you can't yep. you you can't let you can't let up for a second. I, I was really shocked yep. when you said um, when you said you you think the we'll see a change in about twenty years from now. Uh, but then yep. and I and I kind of like as I was shocked, I kind of re, like tried to think about why that shocked me so much. And I you know I kind of <laughs> thought about again that that generational trauma. You you said yourself on a, a phone call that we had um, previously that you know as early as your grandparents your parents age they had to basically renounce their indigenous heritage if they wanted to go to school so that again ripple effect i'm yep. sure is still felt it's felt because those of us where where that rule doesn't exist anymore so you're we're not enfranchised we're not forced to give up our indigenous status according to the government mm-hmm. um when we go to school anymore but that was certainly the reality um in my grandparents um time and and for some people and for so for many people those elders are still around those parents are still around so they remember what it was like to not be given that be able to i mean it's not really a choice do you give up your ethnicity do you give up being able to feel like you can identify as indigenous or do you go to school Mm. and to i mean to be given that to be presented with that, it doesn't really feel like a choice. So for those of us now who, for whom that rule or the, those rules don't apply to anyone right anymore, right. for me to be able to go to university and get a degree, I actually have two bachelor's degree and a master's degree. I take mm-hmm. quite a lot of pride in that, not for myself, but for my family and for my community. Mm-hmm. And I know that when I first amazing. got my first, uh, yeah, when I got my first degree, it's in kinesiology of all things. Um, <laughs> when I got my first degree, one of the, my community is quite small. It's Bear River First Nation. Um, so we don't have a lot of elders, but there was an elder there who at the end of the school year in June, they always acknowledge all the high school graduates and and there aren't many university graduates um, to be able to acknowledge and honor. And she gave me, I still remember this and I still have it. She gave me um a baby eagle feather not mm. to not to suggest that the accomplishment isn't big but she knew that it was just the beginning of something much bigger mm. and was a way to encourage me to keep it's going wonderful. and that it meant it meant a lot to the community to have um another graduate because they were so rare and so right. and for my when i think about my family and that side of my family um, I was, I believe, of the many cousins that I have, uh, I believe I was only the second one, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to even have a bachelor's degree. Wow. I, I wanted to kind of uh, talk briefly here about uh, about stigma, because when we were talking about the idea of elders having to renounce their literal heritage, literally who yep. they are, um, yep. you know, for me, I'm looking at that from a mental health and a stigma standpoint, and I'm looking at that as an educated indigenous person isn't an indigenous person. That's the public perception. <laughs> it's if you are uneducated, if you do not go mm-hmm. to college, university, you are indigenous. But as soon as you get that level of education, like you mm-hmm. can't, and obviously that, that's so detrimental. That's, that's horrendous to think of like, and obviously, you know, thinking of like grandparents who saw like my grandparents or the grandparents of my peers um, who, who would have kind of like grown up with that stigma, like in that stigma, 
Like that's mm-hmm. just, it's just so terrible to think that that warped public perception so much. Yeah. And I think the general public also forgets who benefits from continuing that narrative and continuing to pass that narrative on, who benefits from, um, from saying that one group of people based on their ethnicity alone are somehow lesser qualified, lesser people than another mm-hmm. group. Mm. And that's part so of colonization is to suggest that other people aren't as good as us. Right. Yeah. If, if you, you know, had a few minutes to kind of talk about just like some absolute stigma breakers that you want to continue to push uh, within your work, what kind of, what, what mm-hmm. does that look like? What are those things that are priorities for you uh, to change perception? That we're good enough, that we're good mm. enough to be um, seen as Canadians, for our people to be able to go to a local hospital in New Brunswick and be treated properly mm-hmm. is still a struggle. Mm-hmm. It's still a struggle even today. We, For anyone that heard about Rodney Levi's case last June, <laughs> knows what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. There was Horizon had a board member who came out publicly to suggest that people who are living with an addiction, that that's somehow self-inflicted and that somehow they're less deserving of care. That Mm -hmm. is horrible. That's horrible thinking at a board of director level. So how do you think that trickles down to the emergency room? Of course it does. Mm -hmm. So we're still struggling in 2021 with racism in the healthcare system. I could go on with many more stories that are very recent and we're still experiencing mm. these things in 2021. Yeah. Hmm. 2021, eh? After a, <laughs> like the past couple of years being as socially aware as, as I think a lot of people would like to think they have been, that that's still that systematic you know, racism in your own backyard. I think I, I will personally say from my own standpoint yep. that when I saw everything going on with the Black Lives Matter movement down in the States um, and, it, and it coming up to Canada as well, initially mm-hmm. there was this thought of, but I'm Canadian, you know, there's there's not that level of racism here in Canada. And then you start to I, exactly right, you know, living mm-hmm. in a, a sheltered white town here down in uh, southern New Brunswick. And uh, and it was funny as like after I went to Toronto is when I kind of realized um, like, you know, coming being in Toronto and then coming back home. I was like, yeah, you know, these things exist in like these big cities, but it's not as bad. You know, it's not as bad as the States. It's not as bad as here. But this is like this is right. New Brunswick. This is our own backyard. Yep. And so I wanted to know, like, what type of stuff can people um, such as myself, uh, people who who haven't been necessarily exposed to um, the, the story, these histories, um, you know, because of obviously just never being taught in public school, never really being chatted, like having this kind of stuff be talked about um, publicly and openly. Like, what kind of stuff can can I do to better be an ally to the change that you would like to see within your communities? So the first thing that I always recommend to people is whenever you get a chance to attend or to host a Kairos blanket exercise. Okay. Is that something that's familiar to you? Uh, No, no, not at all. No? Okay. So Kairos Canada is a social justice organization and one of their branches is Indigenous Rights. And Mm -hmm. they, back in the 90s, as a response to RCAP, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, uh, they created what's called the blanket exercise. And it's, of course, evolved over time. But um, it's an exercise in which the participants are walked through the history of this land, the 500 plus years, um, in about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. And mm. blankets, it's called the blanket exercise because... Uh, the facilitators lay out blank when you can do it in person. They lay out the right. blankets on the floor. Their their edges are touching. Each blanket represents an indigenous nation in on Turtle Island. So Turtle Island is um, also North America, um, but the okay. blanket exercise in Canada focuses on Canada specifically and its history. And right. there are two facilitators who basically read a script. One reads as the narrator, and so it's sharing the history from an indigenous perspective. We're mm. very used to reading and being taught history from 
um, a settler's perspective, a European settler's yeah. perspective. Mm-hmm. And so they read back and forth. The other person reads the European role or the, the settler, European settler role. And so you walk through the history, um, blankets get folded up, reduced in size, people who move around. And without a doubt, every single time that it's that I facilitated, people, I think, have many aha moments. It mm-hmm. opens their eyes. It shares with them a perspective that they had never been encouraged to consider before. And it's usually, I know the history of Canada, but I had never thought about it from that perspective. Absolutely. So what does it mean to have European settlers um, want to come over to Canada to get land? Well, it means yeah. that indigenous communities were moved by force were forced mm-hmm. to have to move to parts of the land that they were unfamiliar with that mm-hmm. were not good places for resource. So, for example, if they were moved in for us, if they were moved to the woodlands, well, it means that we don't have access to the water anymore and we need that in the summertime. Right. Or if we're moved away from um, certain areas where the moose, the moose don't go there, how are we going to feed mm-hmm. our families in the wintertime? And so mm-hmm. no one we're not encouraged in history class, or at least I wasn't to think about what it, what it means for new settlers to come over and they were given prime land. So it's no accident that Moncton is where it is. St. John is where it is. Fredericton is where it is. They're very strategic Mm. locations. And it meant that the indigenous people whose land that is currently is, we've never given up our land in any treaty. And so it's Mm. unsurrendered, unceded territory here in New Brunswick in Mi'kma'ki. And so the chiefs continue to assert that those treaties, ours are peace and friendship treaties. All they say, all they boil down to is we agree to live in peace and harmony together. It has nothing to do with land surrender. And so Mm -hmm. when there's resource development, we're never consulted. And yet this is our territory. Mm. It's terrible. Are are you guys planning on hosting um, one of these uh, ceremonies anytime soon? Because it would honestly just be uh, an honor (laughs) to be there. Um, So it's not a ceremony. It's an exercise. So I just want to separate those two words. Okay. Yep, Um, absolutely. (laughs) So anyone can request a booking through Kairos Canada. So Kairos is K-A-I-R-O-S. Kairos Canada. Just look up blanket exercise. It'll be the first uh, thing that shows up on a Google search. And okay. uh, so you can request one in person or you can request a, uh, they now have, I work for Kairos part-time. So I'll say we also have a virtual version of the blanket exercise that is just mm-hmm. as effective and powerful as the in-person one. Um, and so anyone can request to book. Um, usually you're booking on behalf of a group. So if if you could find a group to, to do it with, that would be great. But we can connect offline. I'm sure, offline I'm sure I could probably drum some people up for sure. And so that would be the first thing that I would recommend to anyone who's looking to be part of the solution and not continue to be part of the problem is attend a blanket exercise um, because it really is a great foundation for conversations that happen afterwards and any work that you do. Um, And as an ally, I think just be cautious. I'm going to share a cautionary note that sometimes people can get very overzealous about being an ally and then it becomes about you and wanting to make sure that you as an ally are doing good things and what happens is you guys get more credit for being an ally than those of us who have been doing the same work but because we're indigenous working for advocating for indigenous people it sort of becomes understood that somehow that's part of what we're supposed to do and we never get the credit for being for moving the needle on some of these things, but allies get Mm -hmm. more credit for their anti-racism work. So just be cautious about Mm. that. Um, And most of the time, um, communities know and Indigenous people know exactly what change we want to see. So be a a megaphone for us and not be the voice. Magnify our voice and make sure that we're the ones that are uh, sharing those ideas, thoughts, that we're the ones leading the work and that you're in the background, not expecting to get credit or showcased for it, but in the background, Mm -hmm. 
giving an extra set of hands to move this work and move the needle. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I feel like a lot of uh, a lot of social. Um, I, I just feel like it's very performative sometimes. You know, it yeah. is very much that uh, people want to. You know, it's almost it's it's as weird of a word as to say it's almost trendy. Um, yeah. and so that, so I, I really appreciate you making that note as well. Mm. That's, that's amazing. Um, the last uh, couple questions I have, first of all, is how can people just support, um, your, your clinic and, and the work that you guys are doing right now? I'm pausing because I'm not really, I don't know that I've ever been asked that question. Um, mm. what can the general public do for the rising sun treatment center? Um, I think just treat people the way they want to be treated. Mm. And so if you're saying something to someone that you wouldn't want someone to say to your mother or your sister or your family members, it probably isn't something you should be saying. Mm. And I think we get caught up in the idea of we should treat people the way we want to be treated. And that's centering your actions on you and not on them. And so ask people, you know, when I used to take nursing students to Elsie Bookdook for their clinical experience, every single time without fail, on the first day, the first visit, when I would introduce them to people at the health center, to elders in the community, I would take them to sacred spaces in the community. That's Mm -hmm. our first day. Without a doubt, they would always say, everyone's really nice. And they say it with Mm -hmm. that tone and that surprise in their voice because they had always understood that we were scary people, that we were Mm -hmm. dangerous. I even had a student tell me once, um, my mother doesn't want me to come here because it's like the inner city, but I know it's not. So I'm coming anyway. Wow. And that just, it leaves me, um, it leaves me uh, not surprised, but sad that people think of us as being scary because, you know, mm-hmm. in on the media, we make the news when we're dead or being violent. Yep. And so and in the movies, we're always seen as or portrayed as the perpetrators of violence. Cowboy mm-hmm. and Indian movies always have the Indians perpetrating the violence when right. If you understand the history, it's very much the other way around. Absolutely. We're, and when you're defending yourself, you shouldn't be seen as a perpetrator <laughs> of violence. <laughs> and so when students come to, they always say, you guys are really nice. And I said, you sound surprised by that. And they talk about how they had the only stories they had ever heard. And I said, you know, there's danger in the single story. There's a TED talk about the dangers of the single story. Yeah. And so we don't have enough media attention around all of the kinds of indigenous people that there are. But we have lots and lots of stories about mm-hmm. all the different kinds of Canadians there are. And so we have different stories about what a Canadian mm-hmm. is. But we need more stories about what indigenous people are. And so they, mm-hmm. the students are always very excited to know who we are because they're learning who we are from us directly, from the source. Absolutely. And so we spend time with people and they're always um, very appreciative of people's time. And they're always surprised at how much we're willing to share our community and our culture. And I always remind students before they go, there isn't a glass door at, and there is no gate that will keep you from going into a community. It's it's just in your mind. <laughs> Um, we're always wanting to share. Mm. For anyone that knows the history of the Acadians arriving on the shores of Annapolis Royal in 1604, knows that we didn't turn them away. My community is right there. We didn't turn them away. We welcomed mm. them onto our territory, made sure that they were safe and that they could live on this land. And we lived in harmony together for quite a while. And in New Brunswick, we have gotten far, far away from that original relationship. And we have a long way to go before we can say that we're back right. at that that state of being with each other. So in New Brunswick, I always when I do a blanket mm. exercise, when I facilitate, I always challenge people. I said, can you tell me where there's a Mi'kmaq flag 
because most of the time when I do blanket exercise, I'm on Mi'kmaq territory and challenge them to find a flag outside of an indigenous community flying in New Brunswick. Right. And then I say, um, can you find an Acadian flag anywhere in Mm -hmm. New Brunswick? They're all over the place. Yeah. And I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting they shouldn't be, but what I'm saying, what I am suggesting is that wherever there's an Acadian flag, there absolutely has to be a Mi'kmaq flag flying with it and before Mm. it. Mm. The order of those flags, the order of the flags that are outside town halls matter, right? You fly the Canadian flag in a specific location and it's, it's a message and I used to do the blanket exercise and in, in, in Moncton, and I would say there are five flags flying outside Moncton City Hall, and I would tell them that it's the Canadian, the New Brunswick, the Acadian, the British flag, and the city of Moncton. Wow. There is no Mi'kmaq flag. There is an Acadian mm. flag and a British flag, and a Canadian flag. Mm. And so it was a, wow. a group that I was doing this with that decided to push the city to fly the Mi'kmaq flag. And it's great that it's flying, except it's right. in the wrong, it's in the wrong position, in my opinion. But the of fact course. that we have to yeah. push, that they that we don't see those flags flying wherever there's a Canadian and New Brunswick flag, there absolutely has to be a Mi'kmaq flag, and wherever there's an mm. Acadian flag, there needs to be a Mi'kmaq flag. There needs to be appreciation and understanding for why that flag is even here in New Brunswick in the first place. Absolutely. Mm. Shannon, I, I really, honestly, I can't thank you enough for, for just like taking the time and, and chatting with me today because <laughs> I, yeah. this has just been like very, it's been very, very eye opening on my end. And okay. I, okay. and, and, you know, in, in a, just an amazing way. Um, cause I think that this mm-hmm. is one of those things, like I came into this space hoping to learn and I really feel like I, I did, uh, get a, a new appreciation talking to you, um, for the mental health and your communities and the work that has to be done. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I just can't thank you enough. And I have, I have one last question for you if, if you have time. Well, before you ask it, can I ask you what stood out the most? What did you, what's your biggest takeaway? Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Um, I, uh, picking one is tough. The flag one was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause that's not, mm-hmm. not even something I would have even thought about. Um, mm. in, in terms of, uh, in terms of the order of the flag and the, 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 what that says, uh, having mm-hmm. the flags in a certain order. Um, mm-hmm. also, I mean, just talking about like, uh, having the students come in, cause I'm, I'm assuming that these students are probably around my age, um, yep. uh, of that, <laughs> that 19 to 23, 24 kind mm-hmm. of thing. And so mm-hmm. for them at my age, having that realization of indigenous people aren't scary, these communities mm-hmm. are welcoming and warm and and it, it's just it for me that really kind of stood out because I'm like that's me mm. like I'm I'm that same 22 year old who grew up only learning about like you know opening up a history book and seeing mm-hmm. you know white people in Egypt mm-hmm. like you know when we're learning about the <laughs> Egyptians like all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff like it just it really kind of showed me like how how much I've grown up in a culture that I didn't even realize mm-hmm. I was growing up in. Um, and mm-hmm. just kind of like how much I would like to have an experience like that where I could uh, I could come and visit these communities and really just kind of mm-hmm. like and, and just see see the see the truth in these communities instead of just like mm-hmm. what I've been told um, to mm-hmm. develop a, an ideal for myself. Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks for sharing that, Kyle. Of course. Yeah. Um, the, the last question that I have for you is uh, at the end of every episode, I like to give out a challenge to my listeners, um, something that mm-hmm. they can implement into their day, their week, their month, whatever it may be, um, just to kind of like live a happier, healthier life. But this one I want to kind of like skew a little bit differently because I feel like we've kind of already talked about it. Um, I would love for you to kind of give a challenge to my listeners to educate themselves further on what we talked about today. And yeah, so take time to educate themselves, be conscious about the source of the information. Mm. So um, I will share, I'll just highlight a story for you to, that illustrates that. Please, yeah. Um, for, those, for those that were here in New Brunswick in 2014, um, there was a lot of disruption related to shale gas exploration. On October 17th, 2014 was when things got uh, quite 
um, more violent. Mm-hmm. And the police showed up. Um, there were barricades, those kinds of things. Police, show, police showed up in riot gear. There were police cars on fire. It was a big news story, especially for New Brunswick. And I was very conscious about watching the 6 o'clock news and the different stations that were here and who mm-hmm. showcased that on October 17th at 6 o'clock. Right. Global News did. CBC did, but not CTV. It took CTV an entire week before mm. they mentioned it on their news station. A wow. week after it all disrupted, a week after police cars are on fire, there's riot, RCMP showing up in riot gear, and you wait a week to put that on your news. Yeah. That tells me a lot about the relationship between that station and um, different um, unspoken partners in that incident. So, meaning the connection between Irving and the news station. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, be aware that 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 those mainstream sources may not be the best sources of information about Indigenous people. So. Be aware of APTN News, Aboriginal People's Television News. That's a okay. source. Of, you're going to see all kinds of stories there. Of Sure, there's, there's going to be difficult and negative stories that get shared. But there's also so many positive stories that they share about what's happening in community. Right. Um, and just be aware of what social media um, pages that people like. Where, what's their go-to when they want to find out what's happening in community. Make sure that it's an indigenous source and not a mainstream source. So that's that's the other part of the challenge is go educate yourself, but be aware of who the source is. Make sure that it's if it's a book that you're reading, that it's an indigenous author. For that's example. amazing. Yeah. No, uh, honestly, Cheyenne, like, it, again, I, I really can't thank you enough for just taking the time today and, <laughs> and, and talking to, to me and my audience. And uh, mm-hmm. I absolutely would love to have you back at some point to continue the conversation. Yeah, you know how to reach me. Absolutely. Perfect, Cheyenne. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Kyle. And that is how you close out a season. That, yeah. No, absolutely, man. I want I want to ask you the same question that Cheyenne asked me because this is kind of like your thing. What stands out to you the most about that conversation? I'm glad you asked. Um, I love how this episode felt. How it felt? You don't make it weird. Like... What I'm saying I'm is, like, whatever. we're a mental health podcast. And like it says in the description of the show, mental health is, it's in everything that we do. It's not just mental illness. It's how we interact with one another and everything like that. Cheyenne could have explained, like, the whole therapy process and went into detail about services provided uh, by her treatment center and trauma recovery and addiction recovery and the nuances of her job. But instead, she shared her story. Mm. You know, she talked about her community mm. and her experiences and even though it's not directly talking about mental health itself, it is. You know, when you look at the story through the empathetic lens of mental health, you see the trauma and how it plays a role in everyday life for a major segment of the Indigenous community. She shared herself with our audience, and that is special. So, you know, I, I'm really excited to continue to, like, tell these stories. Yeah, me too. Just the beginning, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you so much to Cheyenne for taking the time today. Uh, we'd love to have her back on the show uh, down the road. Uh, we'll be back for next season of Life's Rec on September 10th. Uh, so that's a month from now, which I, I know, I know. I'm going to miss you guys too. It's a long time, but, uh, you know, with everything that we've got coming up, we kind of we need some time. Um, and I will say, because you guys, you know, have waited till the end of this episode, and you could have heard this if you had to listen to uh, our, our Wednesday's Rec this week. Uh, which was a Thursday's Erect, but whatever, because that's where you get the most up-to-date news on everything Life's Erect. But we're going to be kicking off next season on September 10th with a housemate from Big Brother Canada Season 9. I'm not going to say who it is. Got some let big you guys things guess. coming, baby. We love you guys so much. Um, and you guys can stay in touch through Instagram. 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 And just remember that through all of it, the ups and downs, the happy days, the sad days, Life's Erect. We'll see you in a month.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 